My guest is Dieter Jürgen Jürgensen. Dieter Jürgen Jürgensen is the Director General of the Directorate General for Energy at the European Commission. Welcome to the podcast, Dieter. Thank you very much, Paul. Great to be here. Right. Okay. Well, let's obviously talk about Ukraine and how not to talk about Ukraine. And whether you call it a crisis or not, issues surrounding the EU's security of energy supply obviously predate Russia's invasion of Ukraine in, in February. So could you maybe give a flavor how the debate has changed amongst Europe's leaders when you attend and take part in, in discussions at the highest level in Brussels? Yes, I would be would be glad uh, to do that uh, because um, I think maybe the, the shortest and, and simplest answer to that is this has brought a different urgency, a higher degree of urgency to the conversation around the energy crisis, but also around the energy transition and the need to shift our energy systems away from the high level of dependence on Russia, but also the high level of dependence on, on fossil fuels. Maybe if you take a step back before the invasion, because as you rightly said, the energy crisis actually preceded the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine, because the global market situation, in particular in natural gas, was a challenging one. What we've seen because of COVID is that a lot of the investments into increasing supply of natural gas into global markets, that investment was delayed because of COVID lockdown and because of supply chain challenges. And because demand was low, the, the investor decisions there were also um, in, in taking place in a somewhat less, less certain uh, environment. We then saw, as we stepped out of the lockdown from COVID, we saw quite a significant increase in demand uh, globally whereas supply could not follow because some of these investment decisions had been delayed. And so, in other words, the, the gap between supply and demand became big enough to significantly impact prices upwards already in 2021. In parallel to that, our main supplier of natural gas, Russia, started lowering supplies uh, to Europe. So, in other words, we got less uh, where we uh, less than what we would normally do. So there were a number of factors coming together already before the war. With the Russian invasion into Ukraine, with the Russian war, and um, they, the Russians, further weaponized natural gas. And here I think it's important to obviously, first of all, underline that the Russian war in Ukraine is, first of all, the war in and on Ukraine, on the Ukrainian territory, on the Ukrainian people. And then in parallel to that, Russia is also leading a, a, a weapon, using, using uh, energy as a weapon in its, in its war. And essentially what has happened is that Russia has taken out of the global gas market a very, very significant amount. So uh, to put some numbers on that, in recent years, we have bought about 40% of our natural gas consumption from Russia. Uh, and that uh, has been disrupted very significantly. Russia has stopped supplying a number of our member states. So the global gas markets and Europe has lost close to 70 billion cubic meters of gas this year in supplies compared to a normal year. And the reason I say global gas markets is that that gas would normally be supplied by pipeline to the European Union. And because it's pipeline gas, you cannot just reroute it and sell it somewhere else. It's different if it's liquid natural gas, LNG, that can go into the global market. But pipeline gas can only go where the pipeline leads it, so to say. And so that is the amount that the global markets have lost and that, and that we have to, uh, to replace. And that uh, is what we're trying to do in our Repower EU strategy, which is a response uh, to that. And so to come back to this urgency that I hear in the room and the political conversations is, of course, we need to do that now because, because that supply has been taken away and because there is a war in Ukraine, but also because we have the climate crisis that requires us to take that action. So you've got a number of, of factors 
a number of developments that all push in the same direction, requiring urgent action and, and requiring us to accelerate the energy transition. And, and that sense of urgency you talk about, has that meant that without being too naive, certain obstacles that were there put in the path of progress before the invasion of Ukraine uh, are now sort of magically disappearing or much less a uh, source of confrontation? Well, I think uh, one of the interesting things we're seeing in, in, in handling this crisis and addressing the crisis is that our crisis response to in, in the energy crisis aligns with our crisis response in the in the climate crisis. So in order to uh, address the climate crisis, we need to, to become more energy efficient, we need to reduce our overall consumption of energy, and we need to shift to renewable energy as, as quickly as possible. And if you compare that to what is it we're doing under the Repower EU, and the Repower EU is our plan to reduce our dependence on Russia. So that's our response to the to the Russian war and our response to the energy crisis. And there, what we say is we've got three pillars. The first is reduce our consumption, so energy savings, energy efficiency. The second is renewables, more renewables and faster. And then the third is we need to replace the Russian molecules, the Russian natural gas, the Russian energy with energy from other sources. And so in other words, the, the first two of these pillars are in complete alignment with, with the climate strategy, with the European Green Deal and with that transition. And so while that has not removed all the obstacles because there are genuinely technical and legal uh, challenges in, in doing it, it does mean that um, there's, there's such a, a strong need to act and to act swiftly that sometimes it does help accelerate the discussion and accelerate action indeed. Well, okay. So, I mean, although there's some of the specific initiatives you mentioned, like like repowering new, which are, which are new, uh, but basically we're talking about your energy and climate change uh, strategy of the European Union, European Commission, uh, goes back several several years, maybe decades. Some would say. So, are you are you saying that this sense of urgency uh, le will lead to more and optimistic outcomes in relatively short order, or that are there still, frankly, the same old political uh, issues that are that never seem to go away between member states? No, I do think I do think the crisis has given a push to the energy transition, to the green transition. Um, the International Energy Agency has um, just come out with a report on renewables forecasting development in renewable uh, energy globally, and they see a significant um, acceleration increase in investments into renewables. And the key number there is that over the next five years, globally, we will add as much renewable energy as we added in the last two decades. And a lot of that will happen uh, in Europe. So I do think that, that um, the energy crisis, the very, very high energy prices, also creates incentives for investments into, right. into renewables. And so the market uh, and the crisis add pressure to, to what is already a strong, a strong interest. What we can then do on the regulatory side is to improve as much as possible the regulatory environment. And to give you an example of how we do that, um, we have already simplified permitting rules. One of the big challenges in, in establishing more renewable energy in our systems is that typically the administrative and the permitting processes take quite a long time. So we have simplified the rules around permitting and asked member states to, to live up to some basic principles on that. Then as part of our Repower EU plan, as part of how do we accelerate it because of the war, because of the, um, uh, of the energy crisis, we have further We've put forward further measures, further proposals on what more can be done uh, for permitting. So it is a way to identify what are the obstacles that can be addressed both in a structural way, but are there also obstacles that we can address here and now to take it even further than, than, than what was possible before.
So Europe is, is seriously diversifying its sources of, of energy to be less reliant on, on Russia when it comes to gas, certainly. Uh, when it comes to energy efficiency measures, they say the best policy of energy is to actually uh, consume less energy, both at the consumer level and at the industrial level. Do you see uh, clear signs that we are much more energy efficient in our outlook, both consumers, individual consumers and, and the business sector? Yes. So there's a lot happening there as well. Again, if I start with my regulatory perspective, we yeah. have made suggestions for an upgrade of our energy efficiency legislation, an upgrade of our energy performance and buildings, and an upgrade of very, very ambitious work program on uh, the energy efficiency of products and, and eco-labeling and how can we use, how can we be better at, at doing that? So there's a lot of work happening there that has a real life impact because people will have appliances that are more energy efficient that will make uh, them use less energy and save on the energy bill. So really important um, really an important area of work also for the individual, for the individual European, for the consumer, for the households in terms of helping them save on, um, on, on the energy bill. So it really is a center piece of what we're doing. And then if you add to that, again, the climate crisis, the need to consume less energy, but also the high energy prices and the, the energy crisis that we are in, then there's an even stronger incentive to use uh, more energy efficient products, to insulate homes, to install photovoltaic on, on your roof, if you are in a position yeah. to do that, if you live in a, in, a, in a place where you can do that. Obviously, not all households have the capacity, have the, the, the financing available for that, but, but many can. Similarly, if you look at it from an industrial perspective, we have um, seen quite interesting shifts in terms of the consumption. And again, it results partly from, uh, or very significantly, from the very, very high prices that industry has had to respond to. Mm. Now, what we have tried to do is to drive a process of demand reduction uh, and savings. And we had a, we put forward a proposal for a, a demand reduction regulation in the summer as regards natural gas. And we had a further proposal for a regulation just after the summer uh, to reduce the electricity peaks, to reduce the, the, the busiest moment of, uh, of electricity. And can both I of can these... Can I interrupt yeah. you on that one, Dita? How can you, how can you regulate that? How, at the EU level, how can you get member states to, to accept a, a Brussels-sourced regulation saying you shall consume less energy? No, that's a very, very, it's a very, very good question. So essentially what our regulation, if I start with the one on reducing gas demand, the regulation essentially all member states have agreed to reduce their gas consumption in their territory, in their country, by 15%. And right. to take measures to achieve that. Uh, but how they do it, they it is for each member state to decide what's the best way to do it, because it really depends on national circumstances. What is the energy use? How much of the gas goes into heating? How much goes into industry? And what can you do? Uh, what can public buildings do? Um, how can how can public authorities help individuals install the photovoltaic or insulate their homes in order to address some of these concerns? So it's really up to, to each member state how do they want to do it, but everyone has agreed to reduce by 15%. And we have, of course, been monitoring that very closely over the last month since this regulation was adopted. And we can see we are actually on target across the across the EU. So the overall figure for the EU, there's been a significant demand reduction, but with great variations between member states. One of the interesting elements in that is that you have some member states that have reduced industrial demand very significantly without reducing the industrial output at the same mm. level. Right. Because, of course, you've got demand destruction. You've got companies that will have to, to uh, slow down or, or close yeah. production, yeah. and that's a problem. But you also have 
parts of the manufacturing sector that has managed to optimize processes, simply make better use of the energy that is there. So again, you've got this market driver from the high prices that can lead to a lasting change in, in how, we, how we operate and how do we best uh, use the, the energy. And going back briefly to this Repower EU initiative that you were just talking about, am I right in saying there's a significant or will be a significant financial dimension to this? And are you, is it, am I right in saying that you are going to uh, di divert, if you like, some of the funds under the recovery res and resilience facilities that after the COVID-19 pandemic? Is that going to be a transfer from one facility to another, or is it simply making sure that the the, the funds dispersed to member states under the RRF, to use a jargon, will have a serious energy uh, dimension to it. So essentially what the Commission has proposed is to, to uh, add a chapter, if you will, to the recovery and, and resilience plans, the national plans for, for recovery. So in the original RRF, as you said, the facility yeah. uh, that was related to the recovery from, from COVID, we already had very clear requirements that a significant part of the funding should go to the green transition. So energy right. efficiency, right. green energy, all the, the changes in our systems that can both, again, address the climate crisis, but also help bring cleaner air and, and make some of the changes in our overall economic setup that, uh, that, that are, are helpful and, and interesting in, in the longer run as well. And so, so that aspect was already there. Now uh, we have proposed to if you will, add a chapter to these uh, recovery and resilience plan and a chapter that is focused on Repower EU. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, Repower EU is the European plan for how to reduce dependence, the very high level of dependence we've had on Russian fossil fuels, mm. um, and essentially setting out a number of areas where action can be taken. And this can be a higher share of heat pumps in our heating systems. It can be installation of photovoltaic on roofs, so to use renewables much more also at the level of households and it can be insulating buildings again to reduce the uh, to reduce the energy uh, consumption it can be an acceleration of investment into a renewable uh, electricity generation that can be wind offshore onshore or photovoltaic or other renewable sources it can be a scaling up of uh, investments into biomethane. Uh, and the advantage there is that biomethane has the same molecules as natural gas, but it is not fossil gas. It is, it, it's, a, it's a greener product and one that we can produce ourselves uh, here in, uh, in Europe. So all of those possible investments are envisaged under Repower EU. And then with the proposal uh, funding uh, being made available, but for member states again to identify at national level what works in their system, what is needed uh, in their system. You said uh, a couple of times, uh, Dita, there's a new boost to and, and focus on uh, renewables. And a, a question on, if you like, UK-EU cooperation and the renewable energy and grid deployment in the North Sea and this new relationship the UK seems to have with something called the North Sea Energy Corporation, NSEC, I think, in the jargon. Uh, how do you think that's going to work out in the future? I know it's early days, but do you see that's something which could be really quite quite useful. So yes, I think so. Um, we've had a very good cooperation in the North Sea uh, Energies, uh, Energy Corporation, which is a group of countries all uh, uh, around the North Sea that work together to further develop renewable offshore energy. So energy, offshore wind energy islands, for example, but also to develop the energy cooperation necessary for that to, uh, to, to ensure higher levels of energy security, security of supply, interconnectedness, uh, and affordability, um, of course. 
I should say that this is just one of the regional groups we have. So the other sea okay. basins across the European Union have similar cooperation, similar uh, similar ways of working. But the North Sea is the region that is uh, the furthest advanced in terms of developing offshore wind uh, in particular. So really uh, setting also examples and, and learning from that experience that can be useful for other European areas um, uh, as well. So in the North Sea Energy Corporation, it's both European Union member states, but it's also uh, neighbors like Norway and now is uh, signing up to an agreement with the UK to participate in some aspects of the North Sea Energy Corporation. So I think it is very encouraging. It's very promising that this corporation will be, will be codified and strengthened. And it's clear that energy security, uh, energy sustainability, energy affordability, are common challenges for all of us to address the climate crisis and the energy crisis. And it's clear that by working with neighbors, you can be more secure, you can be more sustainable. You, we, we all need that. So I think it is very encouraging to, to have that cooperation established uh, and we look forward to taking it um, to, to, to going ahead with that. And related to that briefly, I, I know we all know that uh, post-Brexit there have been real tensions between the UK and the EU. The Northern Ireland Protocol uh, casts a very long shadow of many areas of cooperation. Um, but do you see, at least in this area, because the stakes are so high, that there's a, a willingness and an openness on the EU side, the European Commission side particularly, to, to, to work more constructively with the UK or there are still politics getting in the way? Well, I think we've been working very constructively with the UK since since Brexit. And I think in the area of energy, we have, in the agreements reached at the time, we have good protocols and good understandings of what, of what should be done and what can be done. So I think it's really a question of both sides engaging to implement that and make the most out of that uh, uh, geographic proximity and make the most out of the agreements uh, we have, the framework we have for cooperation, also in the field of energy. Okay. Uh, you mentioned earlier also the, this uh, IEA report. I mean, we haven't talked much about international collaboration. I know this is a, Ukraine is a, it's a war on Europe's territory uh, and we have to look after ourselves in Europe. But to what extent do you need to and have to work with, uh, with partners beyond the European Union? We have um, very, very, uh, we have very strong international cooperation and in particular since uh, the Russian invasion into Ukraine, since the war and the energy crisis, we have further stepped up this international cooperation. And we have done that with several objectives in mind. So in a very short term objective, we have had to replace the missing the missing gas molecules. As I said, we have lost about 70 billion cubic meters just this year. And so we have had to find other suppliers, primarily via liquid natural gas, where we cannot uh, where we cannot fill that gap by demand reduction or by renewables in the immediate term. So we've had that short-term cooperation with suppliers, but also with other buyers in Asia, for example, to see, well, how do we make sure everyone uh, will have the, the, the gas supplies uh, needed for their economy? So very, very good cooperation with suppliers like the US, for example. We established early this year um, an EU-US uh, energy security task force uh, which was established by the two presidents, President Biden and President Ursula von der Leyen. And that has really been a very a very important part of, of our strategic engagement uh, with, with suppliers and to bring energy security, not just via natural gas and liquid natural gas, but also very much working together on clean technology and, and, and green uh, energy. Uh, but we've also worked very closely with other suppliers, Azerbaijan, Algeria, Norway, right. supply pipeline gas to us. 
and then working with other suppliers of, of liquid natural gas. So those are like the immediate response, the urgency of getting the supplies we need to stay warm in the winter and to fill our gas storage. Then we have uh, international cooperation with a bit of a longer term perspective in the sense that we really want to change our system away from the dependence on fossil and into greener sources of energy. And that's renewable energy at home. So there's a lot of room for cooperation on clean technology, uh, but it's also hydrogen as a possible energy vector, energy carrier that can replace natural gas in some, uh, in some of the functions and some of the uses. And so we've also worked with key partners to develop uh, partnerships uh, around green hydrogen and looking at how do we develop this sector in the, in the future. And to give you one example, we have just uh, signed a memorandum of understanding with, uh, with Egypt. Mm. Egypt has a, 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 an abundant capacity for uh, renewable uh, energy, in particular photovoltaic, solar power, but also wind, uh, and has a strong interest in exporting energy to the European Union. And so this memorandum of understanding um, really helps set a framework of, of cooperation for that and can also help pave the way for more investments uh, in Egypt, uh, more investment and trade opportunities for, for European companies and a close cooperation that will, will essentially bring more energy and more energy security to both both Egypt and the European Union. So that international cooperation is critical. And a final question then, Dita, if I may, and it's as much for my own education as in anything else, the whole issue of price caps, how, do, how does that work in practice? I mean, you have the, the methodology on the one side, presumably, and but then you have the politics on the other. And how do the two come together without there being a, an almighty clash? And how, but how confident are you that what, you've, you, the, what the EU has now finally agreed in terms of price caps won't have any, as they keep saying, unintended negative consequences? Well, I think, um, first of all, if I it may distinguish the question between uh, natural gas and, right. and oil, yeah, there are different right. working right. processes there. So if I start with natural gas, before you can try to correct markets and, and, and manage prices, there's a lot of, um, there are quite a few fundamentals that you have to do. You have to secure the supply, you have to reduce the demand, you have to fill the storage, you have to see, do the markets operate properly? Are there things like circuit breakers, breakers or other financial market instruments that can help you there? And so all of these things we've done, we've reduced our demand, we've ensured alternative supplies, we've filled our gas uh, storage, our underground storage, and we have addressed uh, financial market aspects. We are creating more surveillance and more certainty. We are um, doing uh, working towards joint purchasing. So all of these fundamentals we have addressed. And there's then still a question in natural gas markets in Europe where we see where there's a very high volatility. Um, this in itself has an enormous cost on our, on our societies, for our economies. And so what can we do to correct that? And it's in that context that we from the Commission have proposed a market correction mechanism that is still under discussion with, um, with uh, energy ministers who are meeting just next week here in Brussels on right. okay. the 13th of okay. December, where we hope to, uh, to, bring this, uh, to bring this forward. Then a, a separate work stream has, of course, been um, the sanctions in the oil sector. Uh, where we have already uh, agreed a, a while ago on, on sanctions on oil, but we are now also part of um, a wider international agreement, a, a G7 cooperation, setting a price cap on, on Russian oil, uh, and that's an important contribution uh, to that. Um, and there have been, I think, both very good international cooperation, again, also on this aspect, but also very good discussions and analysis within the European Union to make sure that we get the level right in terms of what is the situation in global markets. 
And very concretely, very operationally, one of the things we do there is to rely on the International Energy Agency for data and analysis uh, to, to help us there. Uh, and again, coming back to natural gas there, we work with the, with the European energy regulators to make sure we have the right market information right. To, to, to do things in the right way and to avoid any, any possible uh, negative consequences of, of this intervention into, uh, into markets. Okay, well, well, we have to leave it there. Dieter Jürgensen, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for inviting me.